glad you're here and I'm glad you downloaded. Uh, you're in for a treat today. This one, I'm just going to warn you, is a little bit longer than most, which is why I didn't put a little clip at the beginning. So here's what you have to expect. Nathan Jacobs and I, we chatted about Eastern Orthodoxy and so many other things. Like it's really hard to concisely describe it adequately in a small little intro here. And so I just really want to get into it. I greatly enjoyed having this conversation with Nathan and I am fully admitting how much I have no idea what I didn't know. And uh, that bag of didn't know is just getting bigger. And that is, man, I love it. I just personally love it. And so here we go. A conversation about a road to becoming truly human, and a road to Eastern Orthodoxy. Let's do it. Dr. Nathan Jacobs, welcome to the show. I'm excited that you're here. And since I got the doctor out of the way, um, now we can now we can proceed from that. And for those of you that don't get that joke, it's because you're not a patron supporter of the show, so you didn't hear all the stuff from beforehand. And that's that's kind of on you. You can fix that. <laughs> anyway, so I'm glad that you're here. Somebody, actually, it's it's a friend named Drew, sent me a link to your documentary that you did not long ago. And then yeah. I watched it, and then I watched it again. What's funny is, I think I watch it about once a month for like the last three or four months. Really? Um, and every t- wow. Yeah. I don't know why. I, I honestly... <laughs> I don't know why. Either. Lately, I've been. <laughs> I, lately, I just like to watch you paint. Anyway, oh. <laughs> anyway, um, that's great. Uh, what would you want people to know about you if you were like, yeah? So let me tell you a bit about me. This is the important things in the yeah. context of a conversation about becoming truly human. Uh, well, given that I kind of tend to be a hermit. I would prefer that people not know anything about me, which is actually, which is actually the most uncomfortable thing about becoming truly human for me, because I'm actually in it. Uh, and so all the caveats, you know, now that you've seen it three times or how many times you've seen it, um, you know that I, at the beginning, I'm like, look, guys, I didn't want to do this. I thought about not doing this. And I, I give that is not a script like that is straight up me saying I really am uncomfortable with what I'm about to do and I want nothing to do with this and mm-hmm. I'm only doing this because I think maybe it'll help some people mm-hmm. and that's why I reiterate at the end if your takeaway from this is that I really want you to know about me you really don't know who I <laughs> <laughs> you know, not that those are the words but um that's sort of the upshot but anyway I suppose if people had to know something about me you know uh, probably the some of the best things that, you know, sum up uh, things about me would largely be the fact that I'm an academic and I'm an artist. And that's largely birthed partially out of just who I am. Um, But it's also, it's an important part of my story, right? So as you know, from that film, uh, my story starts out in art school. There's nothing academic about me at that stage in my life. Uh, And the academic side is really an outgrowth of existential questions, like deep and abiding existential questions um, that in some ways I actually temper in that film. Folks who have, um, not to mention another podcast, but uh, folks who maybe know, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Paul Vanderclay, uh, mm-hmm. but he's a reform guy who has a podcast, Reform Pastor, interviews all sorts of weirdos. I was one of the weirdos <laughs> um, and <laughs> that he interviewed. And I actually talked to him in there in very candid terms about like the role of LSD in my spiritual journey. Hmm. And um 
I don't know if I can say that in church, but you can say uh, whatever I'll you say like. that here. <laughs> I'll say that here. So we talked very candidly about that. That's something that's sort of hinted at in the documentary, but sort of tempered down a little bit. I just talk about hallucinogens, but it's it's really deep and abiding existential crises that compel me to start to dig deep into philosophical and theological contexts and you know questions and asking deep and hard questions about you know the afterlife and god and free will and all sorts of things like that and that's where i become an academic uh, almost on accident right uh, some people are just i'm a good student and i go to college cuz i'm a good student i got into a good college cuz i'm a good student and i pick a discipline that i really like and maybe i want to become a professor and i'm an academic because i'm an academic cuz i'm an academic I was not. Anybody who knew me growing up would be like, he does what? Right? He has a PhD. <laughs> what? <laughs> what is it? A PhD in, you know, <laughs> you know drug use? Is it uh, like, what is? And um, yeah, that would not be what anybody would expect. A lot of people would expect, yeah, he went to art school. That makes sense. You know, hmm. uh, yeah, he used a lot of drugs. That makes sense. Um, but he like went off and studied a bunch of philosophy and theology and did a PhD and like publishes a lot of stuff. And that does not make any sense. Um, but I think that's in some ways also why if you look at, if you look me up academically um, and start to look at my resume and, you know, what sort of things I've published on, you'll find it's very eclectic. It's like, huh, he's published on like Eastern church fathers and metaphysics. But he's also published on like philosophy of art and, um, People like uh, Sir, you know, uh, Sir Joshua Reynolds, um, uh, so aesthetics and things like that. But he's also um, published on Immanuel Kant and, um, you know, and then yeah. he's, you know, all this sort of stuff, Leibniz. And so what's going on, right? Because usually when academics pick an academic path, what starts to happen is they, they pick a they pick a road and they stick with it, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm interested in Kant. So I just write about Kant my entire career. But for me, because academics was entirely driven by, I, I have certain questions and I want answers to those questions. I was never like a proper scholar who went down a proper road of, well, you do good in school and then you go to a good school and you do good in that school. And then you take your you know GRE and you go to a better school and, and you like, buckle down in terms of this specific area of concentration and you build a career publishing on minutia that nobody cares about. Like that's how you do it. <laughs> I never, minutia I never did that. that. Nobody cares about. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. The, uh, the development of the letter alpha in the Greek alphabet, right? Well, it like matters to somebody, I'm sure. Right. It matters to somebody. So, um, I didn't do that at all. And that's one of the reasons why, if you look at my academic work, it's so eclectic and it's because I'm just following threads everywhere they go. It's why my degrees are all over the place, right? Well, he's got a degree in art, philosophy, church history, systematics, systematics, historical theology. Um, it's, and it's because I'm just following questions wherever they lead. Mm. Um, and so that's an important thing to understand about me as an academic is that I really, in some ways, don't really consider myself an academic. I mean, I know I'm considered an academic. I'm a scholar. Some people think of me a con scholar as so this scholar as that scholar. But it's really I was just a guy who wanted answers to questions. And I followed those questions wherever they led, uh, whatever state they led to, whatever person they led to, whatever the book they led to. <laughs> And lo and behold, at some point I had a PhD and I was like, I should get a job. And, uh, <laughs> and that, that led to the professorship and, and all that. Um, in terms of the film stuff, that's that's something I've talked about um, 
before um, when folks have asked how this all fits together with film. It's actually one of the interesting things about film is it's a nice blend of art and ideas, right? And so that's where becoming truly human, as uncomfortable as it makes me, and it makes me very uncomfortable, um, it was actually a really great thing to be able to pull together my aesthetic sensibilities and artistic sensibilities with this sort of uh, scholarly side of myself and do so in a way that actually does convey the nature of my scholarly journey as something that was deeply, you know, embedded in, in finding answers as opposed to just being yeah. a bright guy who really enjoys studying stuff, you know, yeah. or something like that. So that's kind of the progression of this show as well is whatever question I happen to have or whatever I find interesting I just kind of, which really, so it's been helpful. So I've been, I, I, I read a lot of books and I'm, I'm sent quite a few books. And then mm-hmm. what I'll find is I start reading a book. I'll find a, a footnote. I'll go to the bibliography. And I'll be like, oh, that's interesting. And then I'll just get that book. And then right. I do the same thing over and over. <laughs> so I don't fit. I, I usually finish every book for the people that I interview. If, if that's what okay. we're talking about. Cause I feel like mm-hmm. if they wrote it, I should at least know what the heck we're going to talk about. And some, <laughs> if some way that just seems fair. Sure. But outside of that, yeah, I'm very similar of, oh, and then, oh, and then, mm-hmm. oh, this mm-hmm. is amazing. And then people are like, well, right. what about this? I have no idea. What I know about uh-huh. is this one small, <laughs> settle down. That's all I know about. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah I, yeah. I resonate with that because that's also what I loved about, um, I did not read, I was, t- I was a terrible student before, you know, the whole academic road. Um, because I needed some sort of fuel to drive me forward. But the other thing was I, you know, in school growing up, it would be like, well, you should read Moby Dick. No, nope, like, I have no it. interest in Moby Dick. Right. And uh, I remember the first time I picked up a volume of like systematic theology and I was like, oh, it's so nice. It's topical. I can jump to page 237 yeah. and just read that section. And, say and it down maybe for a if month. they reference, uh, yeah, and, and maybe if they reference something else, I can jump over to the other mm-hmm. section and retroactively figure out what the heck that's about. But it was like, oh man, I don't have to read all like 500 pages. That's fantastic. <laughs> and then I can jump over to another book and compare what yes. they have. To say. This is great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was, uh, yeah. So I, I resonate. I resonate with yeah. that. Uh, um, I also went to art school. I went to school for graphics design and then realized really? I, yeah, well, I, I'm not, well, I'm decent at it, but I'm, I'm by no means an artist at all. Although pretty much all the art for the show and anything else, I got art that I hung on the walls in the house. Let me tell you, I'm, I'm okay at what I'm good at. Mostly pencil on paper, um, you know, realistic, photorealistic sketching or whatever. Um, cool. However, I hated working for people because people would come and say, I really want like digital media. Like I want this. I'm like, yeah, but who's the audience? What time at night are they reading it? Is it print? Is it media? Is it web? Well, I don't know. If you don't know, <laughs> we, we figure you could put something together. Right. You're gonna, that's like saying, make me a cake. Right. Okay. Okay. I don't like yellow cake. Well, you didn't tell me that. If you'd have told right. me that, I would have known not to. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I went a different career path, although I've fallen in love with doing this. And, and the more that I learned, the more that I love Great. it. So, yeah. Um, I didn't plan on asking you about LSD or hallucinogens, but in, in three minutes, can you talk to me a bit about that? Sure. Or five um, minutes, whatever. I can edit it to okay. three. I don't care. So uh, the short version of that um, is that uh, hallucin- uh, LSD in particular was, um, I mean, boy, there's going to be multiple sources out there for Dr. Jacobs's use of LSD now. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, <laughs> is that sarcasm fantastic or a real fantastic? <laughs> yeah, that's, no, that's sarcasm. <laughs> uh, so um, 
so uh, I, I talk about it in a much more roundabout way in Becoming Truly Human, but um, basically what happened was uh, the first time I took very seriously death in the afterlife was thanks to LSD. Hmm. So um, I used to enjoy, you know, um, if you've ever seen High Times, right? There's this mm-hmm. point where the, where they talk in there the different types of stoners, right? And he goes through all the different categories of stoners. And I was the stoner who... It, thought everything i think it was actually played by john stewart right where he's like everything's better on weed <laughs> he's like hey man you ever look at a dollar bill yeah i've looked at a dollar bill. you ever look at it on weed <laughs> right like that's that's the whole shtick <laughs> now for me i was kind of that guy now but it was always tied to my art right so i always had this this tendency of recognizing well when i when i you know, make something, I don't get to ever see it fresh because I've been through the whole process in this very, very, you know, uh, intimate way. And I don't ever have the experience that other people have of getting to look at it for the first time. But there was a sense in which it was like, well, if I smoke weed or I smoke opium or something like that, it's like, it's like, hey, I kind of get to look at it with fresh lenses. And so it was like, I would do that a lot. That was a big part of what I did as an artist Hmm. and how I enjoyed the artistic process and specifically the completion of the artistic process. And LSD, of course, was also one of those, I shouldn't say, of course, why was that? Of course, but uh, LSD was also part of the things that, you know, I would embrace uh, in the midst of that whole stage of life that I was in. Uh, But LSD also is the reason I started taking very seriously death in the afterlife. because I had a bad trip. And one of the things about LSD that is so scary is that it is uh, it is a roller coaster ride that there's no, there's no sobering up, right? You buckle into the roller coaster ride, and you're on that ride. You like it, you don't like it. You're on it until the ride's over, and that's hours, right? It lasts hours and hours. It's you know something like eight hours it'll really? last. Huh. And so so if it goes wrong, that's a very scary thing because that means it's going to go wrong for a real long time. Huh. And uh, it went wrong for me once, and um, I was freaking out, and um, and I wanted it to end. And uh, one of the things that I started to think through is how do I make this stop? And the the real struggle for me was, you know, I started to, incidentally, on LST, you start to consider possibilities. Your range of possibilities expands in terms of what you you consider. A lot of your inhibitions fall away, and things like that. Um, and uh, and one of the things I thought is, well, I could kill myself and that might bring an end to the experience. But then my next thought was, but consciousness is actually not a physical object like a ball or an apple or something like that. So just because I actually put a bullet through my brain, does that actually mean that my consciousness will stop? That was, you know, the thought. And I started to explore it in my mind. It became self-evident that consciousness is not a material object. So it's not obvious that killing a material object to which it's attached actually brings about an end of consciousness. And what if this continues on? And what if it continues on actually ad infinitum? Like what if I carries the sun into eternity? Like in the soul, it's like if I can't actually kill it the way you can destroy an organism and it just continues on in perpetuity because it's not a destructible organism, and I'm in this state of consciousness. What if it just continues on and that's hell, right? Like that was basically the process that happened in my mind. Now, what's interesting is later, as I studied philosophy, I realized this is actually what's called the affinity argument from Plato. So one of his 
uh, arguments for the immortality of soul in the Phaedo is actually an affinity argument where he's exploring whether or not consciousness itself is something that is a material object that can be broken apart and destroyed. And he takes it to be self-evident that it's not. And so then he goes into this question of whether it's a product of the physical conditions or it's something. So it's an epiphenomenal thing that killing the organism brings an end to consciousness or whether or not it's its own thing that's independent of that and so on. And anyway, Socrates concludes that it's its own thing that is not wed to, I mean, it's wed to, but it's not um, dependent upon the physical organism and therefore death of the body can't be the end of the soul. Yeah. I didn't, I had never read Plato at that point in my life, but you got there, Uh, but I got there intuitively just from a bad LSD experience. Um, and so that was the first time I took very seriously the idea that the soul is probably not the body, nor even fully dependent existentially speaking on the body. It probably persists beyond the death of the body. But then with that, what I also had emerge was an acute awareness that's every second that ticks by is one second closer to death. And so now death is like this train down there on this track that's coming toward me. And the big question is what's on the other side of that. Mm. Uh, And also with the LSD experience, what happened was the concept of hell became wildly plausible and it became plausible, not so much as a location I'm trapped in where there's devils and there's flames and it's terrible, um, which sometimes has a plausibility issue for, you know, because it seems too mythological or cartoony or whatever it might mm-hmm. be. But all of a sudden, the concept of hell as a condition of the soul that I can't get out of because I am the hell, right? Mm. The hell is my own psychological state. Yeah. That suddenly became very plausible because I was experiencing it on LSD, right? It was, <laughs> wasn't even just a hypothetical plausibility. It was like, I'm in the midst of it right now. Right now. Yeah. Just that this hell is only eight hours long. The question is, could it be longer than that? For infinity. Yeah. And especially if you can't destroy consciousness. And so that's basically what started me neurotically pursuing uh, questions of philosophy and religion because I needed to know what's on the other side of that train that's coming toward me and I can't stop it, right? I can't stop that train. It's going to get here eventually. So what's on the other side of that? And that's what started this road. Uh, so there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I found, so someone the other day asked on, on social media, I can't remember if it was Facebook or Twitter. It doesn't really matter. Um, mm-hmm. Of, you know, when you say what the soul is, what is it? And I found myself typing an answer, deleting it, typing an answer, deleting it, typing an answer, deleting it. I still haven't answered the question, even <laughs> though, because for me, the question became, it's the question of what is the soul doesn't matter. The question is whether or not I realize that I have one. Cause like when I'm asleep, that's what I kept mm-hmm. coming back to. Like when I'm unconscious, Mm-hmm. and I'm asleep, and I don't mm-hmm. dream, or I don't remember mm-hmm. that I do, the, there's a gap in that time. Like I don't have any consciousness sure. for that time. So do I cease to have consciousness for those hours? Well, you mm-hmm. know, if that makes sense. And that's an yeah, overgeneralization. Yeah. And I was like, well, if I live forever, but I'm not awake during it, or if I don't mm-hmm. know that I'm awake, or if awake isn't a thing that exists anymore, that's mm-hmm. not living either, even if I have a conscious that's dormant. And mm-hmm. then I would just delete, delete, delete. Yeah. And I'm still not quite saying it right, nor do mm-hmm. I really know what avenue to direct that energy towards. Um, yeah. But I, I'm not, I've been bothered by it for like a week now. Yeah, just yeah. constantly. Well, would you, would you like me to weigh in on that? Yes, absolutely. That, okay. <laughs> sure, why not? So, uh, yeah. so uh, in terms of soul, like the concept of soul in the ancient world, I think 
one of the things contextually that we we oftentimes struggle with is that we're sitting in a Western context where modernity has been very influential on the nature of the discussion. And it's been influential because people like Descartes, who does this whole thought experiments of, you know, um, where I doubt everything. And he's he's trying to work backwards to what is, you know, I am the one doubting, so what am I? And all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. that gets into his discussion of the soul. And he eventually defines soul um, in, in tandem with, you know, with consciousness and thinking, right? So it becomes linked with rationality. Um, this, you know, thinking substance uh, is basically where you end up. And then what happens as a result is people tend to link, you know, personhood, soul, and thought, you know, as if they're one thing that's just sort of clustered together. And then you get into, you know, science advances, neuroscience, and the question of, you know, those things. And that clouds the discussion even more because now it's like, oh, well, you know, now now is it just brain and is thought a different thing or is it not and so on. But in the ancient world, the answer to these questions are a little more basic. And it's basically um, soul just meant the life force of a body. Hmm. Uh, So the whole point being, is there a logical distinction between the life of a body and the body itself? And obviously there is because that's why we have dead bodies without contradiction. Uh, We run into contradiction if we talk about non-circular circles, right? But we don't run into contradiction talking about dead bodies. That's perfectly logical you know, concept, no contradiction. So you have to draw a distinction between the life of a body and the body itself. And they call the life of the body soul. Now, by implication, of course, you'd say, well, doesn't that mean that plants have souls? And the answer is, yeah, they call it a phutico soul, right? If, you know, that's, uh, you know, the phutico psyche is like, yeah, that's a thing. That's a term they use, the soul Mm. of a plant uh, and the soul of an animal and the soul of a human. And uh, you start to realize, oh yeah, so a plant is alive and it has a life force that's in it because it's a living body. And so it has a soul and that's what they mean. So in a very basic way, that's what they, what, what they mean uh, is just whatever that life force is that a body has that at some point ceases. Now it becomes a secondary question for them, right. Um, About whether or not soul is dependent on the body, right. Or not, right? And this is where you get into Socrates' argument and the entire discussion of whether it's sort of an epiphenomenal product of the body, like the way a sound is a product of a guitar string, hmm. right? Or whether or not it has control over the body, right? Which way the the dependence is going. And that's what's actually interesting because we think, you know, we're so smart now asking these questions <laughs> that nobody has thought of before. Sure, like, yeah, they, they kind of dealt with those questions pretty thoroughly back then. Um, and, you know, you go through all the arguments for why they think or why some of the philosophers, there's actually disagreements, right? So some of the philosophers think the soul dies with the body because they think it is dependent. It's epiphenomenal product. People like Socrates, however, suggests um, that because uh, in epiphenomenal realities, like with a guitar that produces a, uh, an instrument that produces a sound, like guitar strings producing a melody, the causality is only one way, right? And it's a one way where the melody is affected primarily and fully determined by the causal instrument, physical instrument. Hmm. And so he says, the very fact that I can do things like think to raise my arm and it affects, and that indicates a bilateral relationship between the two, right? I can get stabbed and it affects my consciousness, but my consciousness can affect my body to suggest that it's not uh, an epiphenomenal reality because that would mean purely unilateral um, 
causality. And that's one of the reasons why Socrates thinks the death of the body will clearly affect the mind, but it would only be if it's purely epiphenomenal, that would, that would mean it would cease to exist. Hmm. Um, so that's why Socrates suggests the soul, uh, one of the four arguments for why he thinks the, the soul survives the body. I'm going to say this about, I'm going to say this about that guitar argument and then I'm not going to yeah. answer it. Cause I have other, <laughs> I didn't expect to go there, but although it's, I I'm liking this a lot. However, we don't have that many hours to, to, <laughs> we just don't. Um, so being that I play the guitar, I know if you hit a certain string in a certain way, it not only makes a noise of itself, it also makes a noise off of the other guitar strings as well without mm-hmm. me touching those strings. And so mm-hmm. with that way, it makes me wonder what my impact of my soul is, if we're going to talk about it that way, on mm-hmm. those in direct community with me, or at least close community with me. However, I'm not going to answer that. Boy, we could have a lot of fun. By, by <laughs> I'm not going to answer that. Anyway, uh, but yeah. yeah, the first thing I thought when you said that, I'm like, yeah, but if I hit the seventh fret of the A string, I know for a <laughs> fact that it resonates with the E string. And if I mute the A string, the E is still ringing. So uh-huh. I'm not going to, it's fine. We're going to, so um, the documentary that you did, Becoming Truly Human, I think the reason uh-huh. that I do actually, I have watched it as many times as I have, is not because of you. It is because of the people in it. Uh-huh. How I'm did not you, offended by that. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, how did you, <laughs> how did you get them? So I, when people come onto this show, there is a certain, openness about this is we're going to talk about things but it's mm-hmm. not video and so when there's just a voice there's still a little bit of a mask of you can distance yourself sure. from that so how do you get i assume those are all students or how did you get connected with those people like how did they get connected with you in such a way that just strip bare the I mean, there's that one woman that goes i'm pretty sure that when i talk about this my parents like my mom is just going to feel like i i have failed her as a human being right, and that's right. a paraphrase but i thought yeah. to myself you're aware that she could just hit play right <laughs> like, <laughs> does she have an amazon account because if so click yeah <laughs> right. so um, yeah how do you approach gathering people for a conversation yeah. about that yeah so this was a really surprising thing well we started one of the producers who's credited on it uh, joshua lowry uh he's he's the sort of guy i don't i don't have this gift um, I'm comfortable talking to people who I know want to talk to me, but I'm not really comfortable just going up to a complete stranger and being like, hey, what's happening? Uh, but uh, Josh Lowry is the sort of guy who can just strike up a conversation with a stranger. And um, he sort of gathers stray humans like some people gather stray animals. Like it's <laughs> that's what he does. Um, and so <laughs> so uh, anyway, he yeah, I, I said, you know, Josh, you're really good at this. I need to find nuns right so we're going to set up a process where you find them and josh would do anything from like oh there's an open bar like there's an open mic night at a bar and i'm going to sign up for open mic and i'm going to get up on that stage with that mic and i'm going to start talking about this documentary and say if anybody describe what a nun is and describe you know the religiously unaffiliated in case like somebody's really unfamiliar with that term and doesn't know the documentary it's about the religiously unaffiliated or nuns right um it's like you just i'm going to describe what a nun is and i and if you fit that category i'm going to be over there and i'll buy you a beer and we'll talk right like and so you do things like that um there'd be times when we were sitting there waiting to talk to somebody and go, Hey, that, that bartender has got a really interesting look. He'd look great on camera. Josh, go find (laughs) out what his religious affiliation is. Be like, all right. And he'd head over there. And before you know, he strikes up a conversation. 
you know, so it didn't matter parties, grocery store, bar, whatever. He would just talk to people. And hmm. once he had gotten through that sort of initial phase of getting them to sort of warm up and answer whether or not, you know, what their affiliation was, if they fit the nun category, he'd gather basic information and see if they were open to talking to me. You know, now that didn't mean they were committing to the documentary, but would they be at least open to talking to the director? And so then he would create these profiles where you just take a photo of them and jot down some notes. And I'd go through this database he was creating and be like, very interested, very interested, not so interested. And we'd, we'd do these follow-up meetings. And that would normally be, you know, Josh and I meet him at an Applebee's or something, right? You know, and we're sit there and buy him a drink and we, you know, talk to him about, I, w- I would normally go through all the same questions, which were very similar to the questions in the film. Um, you know, I just ask him like, well, you know, growing up, what was your affiliation? Were mm-hmm. both parents religious or was just one? How often did you go to church? Was it sort of a cultural thing or did they really believe it? Um, did you ever really believe it? Uh, you know, when did you start to doubt it? And I just go through this sort of chronological thing. And, um, what was interesting was, uh, what it was interesting to me was that I found that people opened up right away, you know, talking about those sorts of questions. And it seemed that one of the things that was also surprising to me that came out of it is that there were a lot of them were, that were grateful by the time I was done interviewing them, which was strange to me. Like, like to get it off their chest or... Well, yeah. So this is what they would tell me. They'd say, you know, I'm so, th- you know, thank you for taking this time. You know, yeah. And I, okay, why? And it was essentially what I found out is that if you are somebody who is religiously unaffiliated, right? And so you've, you've been raised Baptist, I don't know, right? And you are no longer Baptist. Your parents are Baptist. And they're uncomfortable with the fact that you don't go to church. Um, who do you talk to about religion? Right. Right. Like you're going to talk to your parents. Uh, that's a bad idea. Um, am I going to talk to any of my friends who are religious? Probably not. Cause I fear, you know, the same things I have with my parents and probably project on them. Uh, I got this new atheist buddy and he's dogmatic. He's basically a religious atheist in the sense that he's going to try to evangelize me into atheism, but most nuns actually aren't atheists. So, you know, do they really want to have that conversation? Not really. So who do they talk to, right? So religious people are accustomed to, I talk about religion all the time. I go to church, I hear a guy talk from a pulpit about religion, and then I hang out with friends who also, you know, practice the religion. And if we have questions, we talk about things. What are you reading? Maybe it's a religious book, that sort of thing. You know, you have conversations about religion all the time. Religiously unaffiliated folks rarely have people to talk to about religion. Mm-hmm. In fact, just to illustrate how extreme <laughs> it is in many cases, there's this one couple from New York that I interviewed. I loved, I loved the couple. They were so much fun. I wanted to have them in the film, but you know, it just didn't work out. But they'd been married for three years, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Had never once until that interview talked about whether they believed in God. With each other. Yeah. That's awkward. No, it's not. not awkward is not the word. That's it. That's interesting. So, you know, he's like, I definitely believe in God. She's like, I definitely don't believe in God. And they look at each other like, who are you? <laughs> are they still married? Is this, is it your fault? I hope so. I hope so. I hope so. 
Uh, but it was funny because because to watch them like have this, suddenly it was no longer an interview because they're now arguing with each yeah, other. You just walked this. away, paid the bill, and said, right, "Take as like, long yeah, as you need." That's, that's right. Here's the number of good counselor. Uh, you know, it's, <laughs> but it was yeah. So that that was shocking to me. I couldn't imagine not only having gone through a dating relationship, but a full marriage and been married for three years. Never once it comes up. Do you believe in God? Like really? But I, the more I reflected on the question of if I were not practicing religion in any way, I wasn't a student of religion or mm-hmm. anything like that, when would I talk about it? Probably not often, especially if it's a sore spot, right? Yeah. There's a lot of hurts, you know, as, as the interviews show, right? There's a lot of sensitive issues sitting there with religion if you've abandoned it. I don't want to spend a pile of time talking about the movie or the documentary. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you call it. The the picture. There we go. Yeah. The moving picture. Because it is easily accessible um, yeah. and people can wrestle with it. And it's, it's well put together, so it stands on its own. I am more... So if you're comfortable, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking a bit about where you and your wife ultimately ended up. And I'm assuming that you're still practicing Orthodox faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. know next to zero. Actually, if there's negative numbers, that's about how much I know about the Eastern <laughs> Church. Okay. If there's a way, there's, mathematically, that's not possible for me to know a negative amount. But you know what I mean. Um, yeah. I'm a banker. That's the uh, career that found me. So really? I'm well right. aware. Of, we, I'm, I am reversed mortgaged into the Eastern Orthodox okay. Church. I know. I got it. Not, so... <laughs> How, so you talked a lot about, hold on, I wrote it down here, uh, Athanasius just kind of, you know, mm-hmm. strengthening some of the systems, everything that you wanted to, you're like, this sounds, oh, this is yes, and yes, and yes, and okay, mm-hmm. yes. And then you just, like, you seem to have an affinity of Athanasius. And so, mm-hmm. and and some of the other early church fathers that are different than the ones that in the Western church that we would talk about, you know, Augustine, mm-hmm. this, that, and the other. I wonder if you could just for the listeners kind of break apart some of those, how they spoke to you, why that kind of matters, and then kind of how that's reshaped the way that you see God. Sure. Um, all right. How much time do we have? Till, <laughs> till karate for my son. So you've got four okay. hours. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't think we'll need four hours. I don't either. Cause uh, eventually my four year old will wake up and interrupt the whole thing. Okay. So. Copy that. Um, so I'll go a little, you know, a little, by way of, you know, narrative through that. So picking up on my LSD crisis and, you know, delving into religion, um, after I went through the whole, uh, you know, asking pastors, apologists, family, friends, and started reading things obsessively, you know, and this was systematic theologies, this was apologetics manuals, uh, switch majors to study philosophy, you know, so I was now reading philosophers and so on. Um, I, when I delved into that, um, even though I was raised in a Missouri Synod Lutheran home, by this point, you know, those beliefs had eroded. I didn't have any sort of commitment to Lutheranism. Uh, I did have a basic belief in, in Jesus Christ as significant because my mom was deeply into apologetics. Mm-hmm. And so um, actually I knew apologetics better than I probably knew the Bible or doctrine or anything like that. So that had actually made an impression. I went away thinking, I think there's something very reasonable about believing that Jesus Christ is somebody significant historically 
that he's not just an ordinary dude. He really is a wonder worker. He's probably the son of God, but I didn't really have a concept for what that meant. Right. You know, so I had certain basic, you know, anchoring points in my thinking where I think there's something significant about Jesus. I think there's something significant about his claim of exclusivity relative to other world religions and some things like that. But beyond that, I didn't really have any commitments. And so um, when I started delving into these questions, I also had a certain amount of pessimism where I was like, well, it might be that the answers aren't something that I like, right? Maybe we are fated and, you know, God is terrible and, you know, and all that. And that's just what we're stuck with and we're screwed and so be it. Um, And so I was open to all those things, right? There was no sort of pie in the sky optimism about anything that I was delving into. Um, And so where I really started uh, once I got into these things in a very deep way uh, was I wanted to understand a little bit about the the historical development of Christianity. And so I delved into uh, Augustine of Hippo uh, because I recognized just from what I knew about church history by this point that he was very significant in formation of Roman Catholicism and then the formation of Protestantism. I wanted to understand his thought. And so... Um, I devoted years and years to reading Augustine's thought, but then once I started reading Augustine's thought, uh, anybody who's familiar with Augustine of Hippo recognizes that his thought is heavily influenced and spires out into other topics like Neoplatonism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in Augustine's Confessions, right, he talks about reading certain books of the Platonists, and in these books I read, not with the exact words, but with all the same meaning and intent, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he's referring probably to Plotinus, although some scholars think it's Porphyry. So then I was like, well, I got to read Plotinus and I've got to read Porphyry because they disagree about who he's talking about here. And once you read Neoplatonism, now you got to read Platonism. And once you're reading Plato, now you're reading Aristotle and so on and so forth. So it was like what happened was this program that sort of split into two directions as a result. First of all, I was spending all this time understanding Augustine. And then I was spending all this time in ancient sources uh, trying to understand the backdrop of Augustine. So Greek philosophy, and then also looking at uh, how it's spidered out into, uh, you know, the medieval period. So I started reading Thomas Aquinas pretty intensely. I started reading Bonaventure. I started reading John Nunn Scotus, William of Ockham, uh, in terms of later, you know, scholastic phenomenal schools. Um, anyway, so I, th- that was sort of this program going on simultaneously where I'm just following these threads. And one of the things that started to happen was I was... I, I admit that on a uh, on an aesthetic level, right? Um, you know, uh, that was aesthetics, not aesthetics. Uh, on aesthetics level, I was sort of drawn to uh, the the ancient Roman Catholicism, right? There's something cool about the artwork that had already been heavily influential on my thought, right? I was big into Renaissance art, Baroque art, so I knew there was a connection with Roman Catholicism there. Um, I thought, you know, there's something fascinating about the ancient and about tradition and so on. But it was almost like, so I, I went into it with a certain hopefulness that maybe there's something really great and rich here. Um, but as like I peered behind that veil and I started digging deeper and deeper, I got more and more disturbed by it. So rather than being drawn into it, I was really repelled by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really repelled partially because, um, first of all, I was, I was a little unnerved um, by... Uh, Augustine's appropriation of Neoplatonism, what I thought, I, I found his love for Platonism a little odd and wondered if it was in some ways tainting uh, his Christianity. Um, 
you know, my views on this are, are very different than they probably were back then. But that was also that was immediately a little sort of weird to me yeah. uh, and troubling. And then also the other thing that was really much, you know, was also rather difficult was I took very seriously the problem of evil, the problem of pain, things like that as a sort of anti-theology. And thought, you know, and from what I could tell, the Christians took it very seriously too, right? The Christian is, you know, dealing with the problem of evil and the character of God was a big part of ancient Christianity. Um, but from what I could tell, I was I was not persuaded by the sort of apologetic responses to the problem of evil. And I went away, um, you know, wondering, I'm not sure if Augustine's God is good. Um, I, I yeah. think he's powerful. I think he fits in a you know, box. Right. I was like, I don't, but I don't know if he's good. And, um, and the other thing was it, as the deeper I got into medieval scholasticism and I started looking at, um, they're wrestling with the way God relates to free will. And I don't just mean predestination. I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, oh, he's talking about predestination. Yeah, that's part of it. But in the medieval scholastic period, they start to recognize that the sort of classical rejection of mutability in reference to God, that God is immutable and that he's outside of time. And there's different meanings of what that would mean. Like John Duns Scotus definitely doesn't mean what Thomas Aquinas means, but there's there's sort of this odd temporality there, however you interpret that. And that with that, because God doesn't mutate, um, he can't have contingencies, then, you know, there's this real puzzle in the medieval period of how does God, does God have free choices? And if he right. doesn't have free choice, do we have free choices? Right. They're not just about predestination. It's about, does God, is God basically just a force that sort of does whatever he does and then everything else necessarily follows? Medievals know they can't say yes to that, right? That would be Mohammedan fate, right? That's what they would <laughs> one of the terms you start to find, yeah. right? Is they had rejected pagan fate, and then they recognize a certain type of fate that they ascribe to the Muslims, and they're like, and we don't want any of these sorts of things. So, so we're not fatalists. But the real problem for them was if God doesn't have free will, then we can't have free will. And there's this worry about what would be called the distribution axiom, where the necessities that are, are applied to the cause end up extending over and distributing to the effect. And so maybe nothing is free, everything's determined, yeah. everything's necessitarian. Now they knew as Christians they couldn't say that because they knew enough about you know the Christian commitments and the fathers and in scripture that it seemed that had to be rejected. But you know, the puzzle was how do you reject that in any coherent way? Right. It's one thing to say this is true. It's another thing to be justified in saying this is true. And that's that's what they really struggled with. And I looked at and I I looked at all the different systematic ways of dealing with it and basically this, and they go, man, I'm not sure this God is good. I'm sure this not sure this God is free. I'm not sure I'm free. I'm not sure the world, you know, I'm I, oh, yeah, anyway, it's the the other thing with that was also this question of um, you know not just the problem of evil and the problem of fate and the problem of divine freedom, but it was also, you know, from what I could tell, I was like, this God doesn't seem to be involved in the world. And, and I don't mean deism. Like oftentimes folks will be like, yeah, the God of the deists, like in modern philosophy where God's a clockmaker and he sends it off and things like that. I don't mean that. What I mean was even though the Christians in the medieval period acknowledge that God works miracles and he does things and all that shows up in history, there was really a sense in which the model, because of the commitments to immutability, so defined, um, ended up requiring things almost like a computer programming, right? Where 
God acts in time, but he acts causally in time, and he acts by way of, like, before ever making anything, a certain order of decrees that just unfold. And it's yeah. like, is that really him interacting with time, or is that just causally unfolding? Yeah, things? yeah like, a, like a big if-this-then-that algorithm. Yeah, and and that's basically where I was sitting here going, I'm not sure this God is good. I'm not sure this God is personal. I'm not sure this God is present, um, you know, except as in a weird causal way. And um, I really started to be deeply disturbed by it and questioned heavily whether it was true, um, whether it was true, whether it was defensible, um, whether it was uh, sort of pagan corruption of Christianity, all these sorts of questions. And I'd like to say that. And then I went into like Protestant scholasticism and beyond. And I was like reassured that, you know, yeah. that that's Protestant movement that was supposed to sort of clean house and get rid of all the corruptions had like recaptured something. <laughs> and I was like, I don't actually see that. So I studied at the time, by the time I got to my doctoral work, I was studying under Richard Muller, who's one of the foremost authorities in the world on 16th, 17th century Protestant scholasticism. And so I knew very well the fact that, you know, the 16th, 17th century scholastics were in many ways sort of picking up, you know, the torch uh, of the medievals. And I recognized sort of the different sort of ways in which they would appropriate this, but modify that and so on. They were still in the same discussion. It didn't matter if they were Catholic or they're Protestant, right? They were still within that same way of thinking and that same framework and that same way of doing theology. And um, so that was, again, it was troubling to me. And then if you fast forward, I was starting to entertain because... Um, because I had these growing convictions that this was false, that God actually, you know, that God actually is uh, personal and in some way active and present in the world in a way that's different than what I'm reading about in this sort of, you know, scholastic framework. Um, I started to find appeal uh, in certain God of the philosophers. So process philosophy, I don't know if you've come across process philosophy, but is process, process philosophy, philosophy different than process theology. Nope. Okay. nope. So then process yes. philosophy, yeah. So it was originally developed as a philosophy by Alfred North Whitehead and people like Charles Hartshorn, mm -hmm. but then it, you know, developed into a theological system. So, you know, David Ray Griffin and others like that. And so I started looking at those guys and saying, I think God is more like that. But then the, the problem that was simultaneously happening in my thinking, again, with regard to historical Christianity was that I noticed uh, certain evangelicals in the Protestant world, like Clark Pinnock and Gregory Boyd and, you know, others were exploring uh, open theism and free will theism and things like that. And they were kind of trying to do process philosophy light, yeah. you know, where it's like, well, we'll remain broadly evangelical, but we'll try to appropriate some elements of the more personal God. And obviously, like the a lot of the evangelicals freaked out and were like, you know, that's heretical. And, mm -hmm. so and I thought, you know, that only confirmed <laughs> my worries about that entire way of thinking. So what, what, this is a very long way of saying where I eventually went in my thought was I ultimately crafted, you know, uh, a sort of religion of my own making, which was largely influenced by process philosophy. So panentheism, right. That the God world, organism is sort of one big thing god is somehow like substantially present as part of the organism and that god has free will and he um sort of 
uh, interacts with and tries to woo and direct our free will, but he's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient, et cetera, et cetera. My favorite book, largely because I found the t- title so pretentious, um, was Charles Hartshorn's book, Omnipotence and Other Theological Mistakes, which I thought was a great, <laughs> great title. Uh, and so I had, I had, what I had done is in delving deep into the, um, this, this sort of backdrop of historical Christian theology and really delving into the Augustinian tradition in depth, right? This was no superficial delving in. Um, I had been definitively repelled from historical Christianity, and yeah. I went away rejecting it entirely. Um, not that I was ever really fully embracing it, right? I wasn't a practicing Christian in that sense. I was doing a philosophical, theological exercise, yeah. dealing with questions. But um, I went away going, whatever this is, it's not true. And, I, and, and this over here is closer to the truth. And that's where, you know, I embraced process philosophy, and I had a Jesus of sorts, right? Definitely wasn't the Chalcedonian Christ, but he was <laughs> Christ of, you know, Chalcedon. He was, but I had a Jesus of sorts, and I had a Trinity of sorts, and I had a God, you know, who was an organism interacting with the world, and I had, and I had basically developed this sort of, you know, eclectic, secular, philosophical religion. Um, and uh, anyway, this, that took years and years. So that spans over you know, my study of philosophy, church history, systematics, and into my PhD work. And um, what ultimately started happening was the big moment for me that changed everything was when I took this class called Nicaea to Chalcedon, or not not Chalcedon, Nicaea to Constantinople. Um, And so the Council of Nicaea is the first of the seven ecumenical councils, Constantinople is the second, so it was about that span, right, between the first and the second uh, ecumenical council that frames the Nicene Creed that, you know, churches that say the Nicene Creed say it's the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, really. Um, and so I took that class, and while I had read about this period in church history, I had not read the primary sources of the disputes going on there, right? As you can tell from the sort of bibliography I laid out, I spent all my time in primary sources in the Western tradition. Um and it never occurred to me that maybe there was something wildly different, you know, outside of that tradition. But um, I took that class, again, this was a, in a, a, you know, a doctoral class, and it was under a patrologist, uh, patrologist, you know, somebody who studies the church fathers. Um, and it was nothing about but primary sources, right? So we're, so we're reading Athanasius, we're reading Arius, we're reading Alexander of Alexandria, we're reading letters back and forth with the bishops, and we're reading the actual council of you know, Nicaea, all that. And as I started reading Athanasius, I was so disoriented uh, because what I, I, there's a certain point when you study theology where you start to master these theological systems and you're like, okay, I know what Reformed thought is, mm-hmm. right? So if I pick up a reform guy, I more or less know what he's going to say about topics. I might find one or two surprises, but more or less I can sort of predict how this system plays its way out with regard to, you know, any of these sorts of questions. Same yeah. thing with Lutherans and Catholics and so on. Yeah, you can skim your way through almost the entire book or whatever that's you're right. reading. Yeah. Yeah, until you find something interesting. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I read Athanasius, I was like, I don't know what I'm reading, but whatever I'm reading, I've never read it before, right? Like, this is something that is entirely alien to everything I know. And that was exciting and interesting and unnerving all at the same time. And uh, then I'm reading Arius's response. And the funny thing is, Arius, 
what Arius has to say is more intuitive than Athanasius, uh, at least for me at the time, the way I was thinking. So I was like, I understand Arius much better than I understand <laughs> Athanasius. I wonder if Arius is right in this discussion. And so over time, I start wrestling through this, and I'm, I'm thinking, like, Athanasius is saying things about salvation that I have no idea what he's saying. He's saying things about the incarnation that I don't understand what he's saying. Um, and he's making certain arguments about creation and what creation is and how it happens that I don't get. And over time, I'd start to wrestle with this and, and went deep into the text and trying to figure out what on earth is going on. And I started thinking, oh, well, maybe if Athanasius means this, then then this would follow here. And uh, that does seem to be what Arius is responding to. And I slowly started putting together those pieces. Um, but there was so much that was disoriented. I didn't understand you know, what he was saying about salvation, about creation, um, about, you know, the incarnation, was understanding the crucifixion didn't make any sense to me, you know, um, all this sort of stuff and all these weird terms, right, you know, that, that are coming up that are totally foreign to the theological vocabulary I've developed over like, these years. Like what? Well, as I if, as I span forward into you know other writers of the the area like the Cappadocians, you'd term find terms like the divine energies. What the heck are divine energies, mm -hmm. or the things around God? What what are you talking about? <laughs> right, the divine processions. I mean, I've heard of the Holy Spirit proceeding from you know the Father, but like what the what the hell are the conversations, yeah. <laughs> right? And then, of course, these shocking statements that you find in like Athanasius, Basil, where it's like, oh yeah, God became man so that we can become God. You're like, I'm sorry, excuse me? What, <laughs> what, is, what does this even mean? Um, and so, you know, and also like, you know, in, in terms of salvation, Athanasius tended to locate salvation largely in Christmas and the incarnation itself and not so much in the cross. Now, the cross was significant, but I didn't understand how because, again, it didn't fit the usual penal substitution sort of models that I'd encountered in a lot of Protestants or in Catholicism and so on. Anyway. Um, basically what started to happen is, uh, as I tried to walk my, this was the first time in a while I had been really reading theology because I was in new territory, mm -hmm. right? The first time in a long time where I'm like, I have no idea what I'm reading. And, um, and that went far beyond that class. I obsessively delved into that topic and those writers and, you know, the class, the class walked me through, I mentioned Athanasius, Arius, Alexander of Alexandria, but then going all the way up to Constantinople, you start reading the Cappadocian fathers. So Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzen. Um, and, uh, and what was interesting to me was as I read them, not only was I finding a theology that was totally alien to everything I'd studied and I didn't understand and I knew I didn't understand it. I understood enough of it to know I'm not understanding it. Um, but the other thing was that the more I started to get glimpses of, okay, now it's starting to become clear, the fuzzy picture is starting to take focus, I started finding that um, their view of the goodness of God um, was closer to my own views on the goodness of God. And that the sort of Augustinian way of talking about the goodness of God was alien to them and probably would have been rejected by them, right? Um, I found... I started to think maybe I think their God actually is good. I started to realize that their view of God world 
interaction was very different than what I had read in the scholastics. Their God actually is present, active, free, personal. And um, again, I still didn't understand quite like what some of these terms meant and how this was even possible and how they avoided the sorts of problems that, you know, was driving the Western discussion. Mm -hmm. But what I could tell is as gone there, you know, it's different and, and their God actually is present, active, free, personal, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so suddenly for the first time in my life, I found myself in first time in this journey, I find my, found myself saying, whatever this, whatever this Christianity is, I have far more resonance with it and the possibility of embracing it, hadn't yeah. embraced it, but the possibility of embracing it than I ever have with any other historical form of Christianity. You talk about, and, and this is a question I, I struggle with a lot. So a bit of context and listeners of the show, or at least longtime listeners will know. So my wife is a pediatric cancer nurse. Um, mm-hmm. And so I have a lot of friends and my wife has a lot of friends and family that struggle with the problem of evil. Um, mm-hmm. And so you talk about, you have an affinity for the way that Athanasius handles the problems of evil. Mm-hmm. Concisely, how does he handle the problem of evil? Because I know what I hit, I get those rote responses of, you know, God didn't cause this, bad things just happen. And then you also have the other side of, yeah, you're just not doing life right because good things mm-hmm. don't happen. I mean, good, bad things right. happen to people that aren't good people. In, in other words, but how does Athanasius handle the problem of evil? Yeah. So it's more than just Athanasius. I mean, I, I mentioned it in there because that was the start of yeah. seeing the seed of a response. But one of the things that became apparent to me, and if people really want to be ambitious and try to read uh, high-flying academic uh, articles uh, on my academia.edu page, you can find my journal articles. And, um, Sign me up. you know, and there's, <laughs> and and in there you'll find, you know, articles on Athanasius and other things like that. There's an article in there that deals with it uh, a bit called Created Corruptible, Raised Incorruptible. And that's where I sort of treat that. Uh, this this particular issue. But one of the things that came out, and again, that's not the only article that, in which I deal with it, but mm-hmm. it became apparent that for Athanasius, that what a creature is, uh, I'll do it in the full metaphysical way. Okay. Like, you know, basically in Aristotelian uh, metaphysics, you have uh, this distinction between the properties of a thing, mm-hmm. right, what it is, and then um, the uh, the material substratum that receives it, right? So uh, the ancients are dealing with the question of how do you have this phenomenon of becoming or generation, uh, given the fact that things either exist or they don't, right? And that seems to be a pretty obvious binary, you know, distinction. Uh, But generation seems to talk as if something moves through stages of becoming a thing, becoming more real, but things just either are or they aren't, right? The Eleatic philosophers really use that to sort of hammer home the idea that change and development must be an illusion. And Aristotle's answer is he introduces something, um, he he introduces the concept of potential, and specifically this is how he defines matter, right? So Aristotle's concept of matter is actually, or prime matter, is that matter is not, you know, it's not particles, you know, it's not atoms, even though those things were already, there were particle systems and atomic systems in the ancient world, that was nothing new. But Aristotle's point is if you have an atom, if you have any sort of thing that has real properties, it's already gone through it, you know, it's already sort of concretely real. Yeah. It's more than matter. It's matter with properties. And Aristotle's uh, point is that whatever matter, prime matter, 
you know, beneath all this stuff is, is its pure potential, right? And that's sort of a weird concept. How do you think about it? I think what I find helpful is thinking about it almost like, you know, a loose bit of fabric that is potentially, uh, you know, in this shape or potentially in this shape, right? The idea is that you take this potential and you can join it with properties and then you have what's called a hylomorphic object where you have like the actual properties concretely manifest in, you know, a material instance. Okay, so, and the Aristotle uses that to explain generation, that what you have is matter, properly speaking, is just the potential to be something. And what happens is that matter begins to take on properties, and as those properties manifest, that's what we call generation, right? So that's why it's matter moving through these stages as it manifesting certain properties. Um, and so that's that's what hylomorphism is, right? You know, sort of you know, the material receiving certain properties. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's by way of background. Anyway, there's this whole sort of Alexandrian Jewish reception and people like Philo of Alexandria. Um, and not, he's not the only one, but who picks up on that concept and starts to talk about, um, that he describes the cause pulling from Genesis that God calls being out of non-being, right? So he, you know, that, that basically in Genesis, what you have is God telling matter to become certain things and, you know, those okay. proper manifest in matter and that's what generation is. And then uh, that term, that phraseology that Philo uses ends up in the, you know, you see it in the New Testament too. So Paul talks about God who calls the being, you know, or calls non-being as being, right? And then Christians pick that up. It shows up in the liturgy of John Chrysostom and things like that. Well, Athanasius is using the same concept. And so when Athanasius talks about what a creature is, you know, he talks very plainly about just the fact that, well, obviously every creature moves from non-being into being. That's actually from Aristotle's physics, right? So Aristotle had already talked about this. The Jews had embraced it, or at least the Alexandrian Jews had embraced it. And so the Alexandrian Christians, like Athanasius, also have this concept floating around in their mind because, you know, Paul mentions it too. So when Athanasius talks about that, one of the things that becomes inevitable is that there's no such thing as creatures just bursting into existence. Like God says, let there be horses and boom, there's a horse, right? Like for them, the concept is that the calling of a thing into being, metaphysical necessity moves through stages of development. And in fact, Arius, who says, well, no, 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 no. Um, I think God, at some point in this discussion, Arius, because he recognizes that this is part of the argument, right? Part of the argument that Athanasius is using is he's saying, if the Son of God is a creature, the way Arius suggests, and for those who don't know what Arianism is, that's what Arianism is, right? That God the Father creates God the Son. There's a time where he's not the Father right. and then he creates the Son. Athanasius says, if that's true, the Son of God like is mutable, meaning he goes through stages of developmental generation, right? And then Athanasius starts to go through all these other um, entailments as well, where he says, and he also has to be accidentally good, like he can't be essentially good. And that means he can also be corrupted, uh, he can move out of being, he can become evil, right? Like he goes through all these entailments. And those were amongst the things where I was going, whoa, like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Uh, but Arius, he gets it, right? So in his response, he's like, I don't think the Son of God gets his existence from matter. Okay, that right there indicates he understands what the physics are underneath what, what they're talking about. Um, and Athanasius, or Arius says, actually, I think it was at the advice 
uh, was he Eusebius or somebody, but Arius is like, um, he's like, okay, no, no, no. So I think the father creates the son, but he creates him immutable. And <laughs> Athanasius says, can't bend the rules. That's impossible. Can't bend he says, the rules. Yeah. He's like, no, that's impossible. Now that part right there is really important because what it shows is that what Athanasius is saying, Alexander of Alexandria says, what the council and its anathemas say, and the church fathers after them say, not even God can make immutable creatures. In other words, they understand when they talk about what is possible for God, they think there are still sort of certain physics to it, right? And what this means is not even God can create creatures that are immutable. Not even God can create creatures that don't, don't go through deve you know, developmental stages. Not even God can create creatures that are essentially good and so on. Now that starts to, now they're not talking about the problem of evil here, right? They're just talking about basic physics, right? But their physics and the theology of those physics have ramifications because what starts to happen is if every creature of metaphysical necessity is of a certain, you know, is a certain way, uh, and not even God can make it otherwise, then you begin to have the beginning of an explanation for why doesn't God make creatures this way? If the answer is he can't, that's the start of an answer. Hmm. And so anyway, I go through, there's another article on my academia page called uh, On the Metaphysics of God and Creatures. And I actually walk through every metaphysical um, entailment that comes out of that discussion yeah. and the rationale for each entailment. But this is this is probably a good way of backing into a little bit about you. I mean, you asked me what Eastern Orthodoxy is and how it's different than the West. So what you're saying with the problem of evil is God can't create things that are not possibly evil or corruptible. And so that's why evil exists. Am I, or am I, I just want to make sure I'm not paraphrasing incorrectly before you yeah. pivot to the Orthodox. Well, I think answering that question and pivoting to Orthodox are going to happen simultaneously. Perfect. Fantastic. Okay. So let's do it this way. What is the Christian religion? Okay. A Western answer typically and here by Western, I think this is true of Catholicism, it's true of Protestantism. The critical thing is that God is a judge, right? He's a lawgiver, and that's also a judge. Creatures are subordinate, moral creatures especially, are subordinate to those laws and held accountable to the laws, hence the judge part. That the human condition that Christianity exists to remedy is the fact that we are fallen, right? And have some way found ourselves in a condition of guilt and future judgment that is not looking good for us with our creator and our judge, and that the Christian religion exists in order to somehow remedy that. Now, there's going to be differences there on how does that happen, mm -hmm. right? Um, does Christ atone for our sins and put us right with God, even though we're not right in our behavior? Or is it somehow that he gives us grace that enables us to do things that are meritorious before God right. and remedies our situation? But more or less, that's sort of the judicial legal framework of the way that the West tends to think. The Christian religion, according to, let's say, Athanasius, and you could read my article, just, just called Athanasius of Alexandria. It's um, forthcoming in the Wiley Blackwell. It's 
like dictionary of Christian apologists or something like that, I think. Um, also on my academia page. Athanasius and the other Eastern fathers see the, the creaturely, first of all, it's not just a human condition, it's a creaturely condition. And they see it as a cosmic creaturely condition. Because the term corruption, right? In Aristotle, I mentioned generation as this sort of movement of you know properties into material, right? Mm-hmm. So the manifestation of a thing comes to be generation. Aristotle has a treatise called Generate on Generation Corruption. And corruption is just the flip side of that, right? It starts to erode and move out of existence, right? So you see a plant move through a seedling state until it's fully formed, that's generation. When it starts to retreat backwards and erode and die, that's called corruption, okay? Okay. The fact of the matter is that every creature, because it's a creature, is susceptible to corruption and not even God can make it otherwise. Because if what a creature is is something who manifests in matter, right? And matter has no properties of its own, just like this fabric can be any number of things. Even though it receives properties, no properties it receives are native to it. It can release anything that enters it, right? Because it's just a receptacle. And what that means is that anything that comes into being can go out of being, or anything that is generate is corruptible, okay? So that's a basic, and we're not even talking about morally. We're just talking about in terms of- metaphysically. Yeah, yeah, metaphysical mm-hmm. composition, right? Mm-hmm. That's all we're talking about, or physical composition. Okay, so that's the condition of plants, that's the condition of animals, that's the condition of humans, uh, that's the condition of angels. Um, so, any creature that's applicable. Now, the question is, if that's there as a threat to all the entire cosmos, how do you ever deal with that, right? And that... Uh, is the central question of Eastern Christianity. So it's in some ways, yes, the fall of humanity and death and disease and corruptions of various kinds setting in and starting to spread throughout the cosmos is a manifestation of the problem. It's a realization of the problem. The threat is realized and now active, but it was there before the fall. The threat that Christianity exists to remedy is there before that ever sets in. Mm And so for the Eastern Fathers, the, the, the question, the main metaphysical question is if corruption threatens the whole of the cosmos just because it's created, you know, every creature just because it's a creature is threatened by this, how do you ever remedy that? Right. And for the Eastern Fathers, uh, a critical answer, and this is where it gets into all the other weird terminology that I mentioned, that I was like, what on earth are they talking about? Their answer is that only by participating in the only thing that's incorruptible can a creature ever hope to escape corruption. And that thing, if it's properly called a thing, is God. Yeah. And so critical to the Eastern patristic way of thinking, this is also where I get into, I mentioned that they have a much more sort of, I would call it a porous view of reality. So there's a tendency in um, in Western thought, specifically thanks to the Enlightenment, um, like the, the mechanical philosophy is actually what it was called, right? When the sort of modernist movement decided their anti-Aristotelian, anti-scholastic push, they developed the mechanical philosophy and everything was based on the idea. It was a, re, it was a you know, rehabilitation of ancient atomic um, atomism and particle philosophy. So people like... Um, Pierre Gassendi were explicitly 
resuscitating ancient atomic theories. Um, and it was purely speculative, but the idea was like, well, let's pretend that everything's just composed of atoms and atoms are solid bits of things because that's how they thought about it back then. And so they just collide, right? They're closed systems that just like run into each other. And how stuff works is just mechanism, mechanistic push-pull systems, yeah. right? Well, as a result, everything's a closed system, right? Nothing's porous because it's all just like boom, 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 push, pull, right? Like that's what reality is. And so, of course, like God is just sort of in between things if he's present at all, right? Because you and I are closed systems and we're composed of closed systems called atoms and so on and so forth. In the Eastern Church Fathers, they tend to think of things as porous. Uh, and so, for example... Um, this concept of energia, uh, I mentioned the divine energies, right? Energia is a term that uh, Paul uses frequently in the New Testament. And its background is Aristotelian, right? So energia is a term developed by Aristotle, doesn't exist in Greek-speaking literature prior to Aristotle. Um, if you want to see like the definitive work on this, read David Bradshaw's Aristotle East and West. Um, but he, he, Aristotle develops the term and this concept, and initially it's just sort of a basic distinction between um, having and using something, like the distinction between a power, dunamis, and the exercise of a power, energia, right? So I have the power of speech, right? That's a power I have. I stop using it now. Now I speak, right? That's the difference between dunamis, the yeah. raw power, yeah. and the activity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So... But as Aristotle develops it, he starts to develop a distinction between kinesis, motion, and energia. And the reason he develops this is because of his unmoved mover argument, right? His argument for one of his arguments for the existence of God. And the concept is basically that if God is a non-mutative, he doesn't undergo generation, he doesn't mutate the way I described, right? Uh, mutative phenomena. Uh, how does he do things, right, without some sort of, like, mutative activity. When you and I do stuff, we mutate, right? There's neural firings, there's potential to actual movements all over the yeah. place, right? Yeah. And so he's like, if God's not like that, how does he do stuff? And so he develops this distinction between kinesis, which is sort of this processive activity, goes through stages like building a house, right, is one of the analogies I think he uses, where you start building and you're in the process of building and you finish building. Um, and perfect complete activity that is complete at every moment and seeing is an, uh, one of those sorts of examples so when i look at you i may be seeing in an ongoing sense but each moment that seeing happens it's complete right it's not you know successive like that yes so aristotle suggests that god moves the world by energia not kinesis right he is always pure complete activity in fact then aristotle goes on and actually says that god just is energia right like that's all he is he's pure energy just energy but what happens is the alexandrian jews end up picking up this concept and they develop it a little further and they start pushing it forward and uh, because they think it's really useful specifically for talking about something that they see in the old testament which is hard to figure out exactly what's going on which is the distinction between God's face and his back, right? So you're familiar, of course, with Moses saying, yeah, show me your yeah. glory. Yeah, I can't show you my face, but you can look at my backside. Right. Don't get That's crazy. Right. Don't get crazy. And the, <laughs> and the question is, what does that mean? <laughs> and mm. and uh, for people like Fi the way Philo of Alexandria develops it, is he suggests that there's a difference between what God is in his essence, God super substantially, what he is in himself, 
and the operative power or energia of God that moves the world and acts in time and acts in space and so on. And so he picks up Aristotle's term for divine activity, energia, and he draws a distinction between God's essence and his energies, which Aristotle hadn't drawn that distinction. And he suggests that his essence is God's face, the energies is his back. Mm. And then there's good reason to think that that's probably the divine glory and all these sorts of things, yeah. right? So that, yeah. that's sort of thing. Now, what also happens as a development in this period is that sort of logical distinction between an essence and an energy, you know, it starts to be play an important role in things like physics, right? With fire, it has operative, it has operations of heating, of lighting, right? But not everything that heats and light is fire, right? So there's a distinction between what it means to be fire, the nature of being fire, and heating and lighting. And then with that, there develops this concept um, that maybe energia can be transferred. And this is where you get into this porous concept. Right, so I can heat metal up, and at some point take it out, and it burns and it glows, still metal, right? But it now has within it the operative powers of fire, right. and so there's a transference, and so this sort of thing started to come into play in the way that, you know, uh, the Eastern writers, the Alexandrian writers in particular, thought about the world as a porous place where there's transference between natures communing between natures and um and ultimately you know they they apply that spiritually so how do demoniacs start to do crazy things that you know humans shouldn't be able to do they know stuff they have superhuman strength they you know whatever it is yeah. uh and the answer was they are energized by devils right and meaning not so much possession in the sense that they crawled inside the body and now they're puppeteering and things like that but it's a transference of their operative power yeah, to another agent. Yeah. yeah, so kind of like the fire metal. Mm. But they also used it positively. So in Second Maccabees, they would use it in reference to the Maccabeans being energized by the good angels, right? So they use it that way. And you have prophets, right? Prophets who are doing miraculous stuff. And, you know, how do they do that, right? They're energized by God, right? And so there emerged this concept of not just a porous physics, um, with regard to physical phenomena and physical natures, you know, certain natures that have an affinity and an openness and a porousness to another, but even spiritually, it became critical to how they saw the world. Well, this gets picked up in Paul, but it gets lost in translation. So there's places where Paul says things like, it's not me who works, but God who works in me, right? And this gets into like all these sort of Western discussions about causality and, you know, who's doing what and, you know, that sort of stuff. But the terminology is actually energia, right? So it's God who energizes me, which in this context means conduit, right? Yeah. It's a foreign operative power of the divine nature is taking up residence within me and I'm using it just like the metal uses the operative powers of fire that are resident within it, right? Um, he uses it in the Thessalonians where he talks about them, you know, uh, doing the works of God and he has, he uses the middle voice. So it's ambiguous whether they are doing it or God is doing it. And it's probably ambiguous in purpose just because <laughs> like with a branding iron, right. Which is doing it, the fire of the metal. Well, they're both doing it. Right. Um, mm. and, and he, so, and he talks about it like, you know, God who energizes me for, you know, ministry to the to the Gentiles energizes Peter for ministry to the Jews, right? 
but then he'll also use the ominous one in Ephesians, right? Uh, it's an, uh, that he talks about the children of wrath are energized by the devil, right? So he uses that whole concept. Okay, it's a long road to get to this whole point of saying that part of this whole concept is that you and I, and not just you and I, but even objects have a porous nature, which is a very different way of thinking about it than the very Western modernist sort of mechanical notions. But that was critical to how they understood the fact that you and I are not just physically porous, right, where we're affected and take into us air and water and food and those things become part of us and so on, but we're also spiritually porous, not just for God, but for angels and for, you know, you know, and even objects are, you know, I always like doing the experiment when I talk with this about I have my students run through a thought experiment saying you buy a new house and you're exploring the new house and you go into the attic and you find a satanic altar. There's always a gasp. And I ask what they would do with it. And inevitably some student always says, I'd burn it. And this is like a UK, right? Like this is not like a very religious school by any stretch. Um, And the question is, well, why? It's just a table, right? And they've just got this intuition. There's some bad juju attached to that. That is It's being transferred into the house. (laughs) That's right. And so all the concepts <laughs> about like, yeah. like you know, about cursed places and objects and things huh. like that, that's, that's an intuition. And I know that a lot of, you know, people would say, well, that's superstitious or whatever, but it's, it's so woven into our human intuitions. Like even evangelicals who don't believe in relics or holy spaces still want to go to the Holy land and touch something that maybe Jesus touched. Yeah. And they might backpedal and quick try to backfill that intuition and say, well, it's just because of an interest in history, but yeah. I actually think it's something more than that. You think there's something there for we you. We are, we are probably well past the time that I promised you, but I still have two and a half questions. One of them is about relics and it's one that I wanted to ask you about. Um, so the icons in not only the Eastern Orthodox Church, but like the Roman Catholic Church as well and other churches like in, in the church that I go to, like the best icon I have is a stained glass window. Like mm-hmm. what what purpose for you do the icons serve? Like, is that really drawing on just like the artistic part of you where you're like, yeah, this yeah. helps me refocus and see yeah. something that I didn't create. And then how does it talk uh-huh. to me? Or is it something entirely different? Okay. So uh, let me wrap up that point and tie it to that. Okay? Perfect, perfect. So, so, um, so that very long road I went on is how they answered the question, like, how do you overcome corruption? Mm-hmm. Right. And the answer was that, you know, prior to a fall, humanity's only hope of overcoming corruption would be to commune with and partake and be energized by God yes. and participate in his incorruptible nature and be metamorphosized as a result. Right. That's the only hope you have for putting off corruption or incorruption. What about post fall? Right. This is what how they understand the incarnation. Right. That in the incarnation, God, the son of God, decides to actually fix humanity from the inside. So he becomes one of us. He joins the divine nature with our human nature and he remakes humanity, which goes all the way up through his martyrdom. And ultimately, in the resurrection, you see it fully remade. Yeah. Yeah. That's how he remakes it. And now, you know, our, you know, the hope of Christianity, the Christian religion is actually to be united to him and begin to participate in that through imitation and ultimately attain to the resurrection from the dead. And that's how they understand then when Peter talks about um, that uh, we escape corruption by partaking of the divine nature, 
right? That's what Peter says. Yeah. Um, is that separate and, from the concept of theosis, or is that the same thing? No, that a, is the concept. Okay, of just want to make sure. So, okay. when the, so when they say, like, God became man so that we can become God, what they mean is we partake of the divine nature. Okay. And so just like the metal participates in the energies of fire, so we participate in the energies of God. And, yeah. so on. and that's the metamorphosis that begins here, but ultimately isn't complete until the resurrection from the dead, when the body actually fully participates in it as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, that's all actually relevant to icons. So in terms of iconography, everything within the Eastern uh, Church Fathers and the Eastern Orthodox Church, which I treat those synonymously, um, is actually related to one question, which is, who do you say that I am? Right. The big question is the question of how do you understand Christ? And so like obvious, that's obvious in Trinitarian discussions. It's obvious in Christological discussions, probably less obvious to a lot of folks in, you know, when it comes to like Mary, but that too is like what you say about her, whoever, whatever title you give to her says something about what you think about Jesus, right? Um, And so it's there, but it's also in the Seventh Ecumenical Council, uh, which deals with icons, right? That's actually the question being dealt with. So John of Damascus, when he looks at iconography and is defending the practices of having icons and kissing icons and burning incense before icons, one of the things that he's pointing out is that the the exposition of the second commandment, right, which prohibits, you know, the worship of images and things like that, he explains, he points out that God actually exposits or Moses exposits the commandment, you know, in Deuteronomy. And the exposition is... Um, it basically points out that the reason you're not supposed to make these images about and worship them is because you heard a voice and you saw no likeness in the Septuagint. It's homo eoma, which is likeness, right? So you didn't see anything it was like, right? And it reiterates that every time. It says, so don't make any images of things like the sun or the moon or animals or anything like that and bow down and, you know, because you heard a voice, but you didn't see any likeness, right? And so the point is... Um, Whatever likeness you make, it'll be a false likeness because God's invisible, right? He doesn't look like the sun or the moon or dogs or cats or humans, right? Yeah. And But John points out this isn't a prohibition on images because the temple was like God commands them to make images of things in heaven and things on earth. Like it's filled with that. But the point is when it comes to God, what's interesting is like the Ark of the Covenant actually is it actually is an icon, but it's an icon of the invisible God, right? So how do you make an icon of something invisible? You make an icon of the things around it, right? So you make an icon of angels that won't look at whatever's up here. Yeah. Right? So it's an ironic sort of icon. Um, but John's question is, does what is said in Deuteronomy change with the incarnation? And, you know, just contrast Deuteronomy with, you know, John's, you know, Apostle John's letter where he says, you know, that which was from the beginning, which we have looked on, you know, which our hands have touched, we've seen with our eyes, our hands have touched, you know, contrast that with you heard a voice and saw no likeness, right? And John's concern is if somebody opposes images of Christ, now he's fine with like no images of the father, right? No man, old man in the sky with a great beard, like none of that sort of stuff, right? Like, but if you oppose images of Christ, do you really believe in the incarnation, right? So for John, Icons become an important feature of icons of Christ in particular, become an important feature of affirming the incarnation. 
Um, the other icons, incidentally, have to do with, and this would be a much longer discussion, but have to do with the Christian recapitulation of Old Testament worship. So the Christian liturgy, specifically in the East, has always been sort of uh, a retooling of synagogue worship in a way that reflects the new realities, right? So there's parallels that are then differentiated. Um so that's a longer discussion, yeah. but that's one of the reasons why imagery is always been pervasive in the way that's been worked out, because it was also pervasive in Jewish worship. But um, but the point is, with the images of Christ, it's you know that's part of what it is. Now then, there's these other layers to it, and at least a couple of quick layers. One of them, one of the layers with it would be the fact that um, there is a metaphysic of relationality to it. Uh, and so the metaphysics of relationality, which are really important, um, are just that it presumes, think, for example, of a reflection, right? A reflection in a, in a mirror. Um, the reflection is something substantive. It's real, but what it is, is entirely referential. It is the reflection of this, yeah. right? Um, so by nature, it is essentially something that is referential, and so there was a belief that there's a one-way connection between the images and the actual thing, kind of like the reflection. It is the image of, right? The, light, the language of likeness, actually, which is, you know, used. Uh, John points out in Deuteronomy, God presumes if you, you know, if you worship the likeness of this thing, you'll be worshiping in that thing, right? Because he's not like that. Correct. And, and that's John's whole point is that there's a one-way connection there um, of dependence of likeness upon the thing it is like, not you know, vice versa. And so with that, there was also a belief that I can pay homage to the thing that is not present by honoring the likeness of it that is present, right? So um, uh, maybe a quick, easy analogy would be, you know, a soldier on a battlefield who misses his wife and pulls out the photo and kisses the photo, right? Like, we're not really worried that he's got a thing for photo paper <laughs> or that he's cheating on his wife, right? With photo paper. <laughs> Pornography is not normally people going, man, people are really into like, you know, LED displays or paper or like, <laughs> we understand that there is something about the image, what it's imaging. So anyway, the point is like, that's, that's pretty critical to how they understand the image. This has to do with not the thing, but the thing it images. Um, so I honor the thing that is not physically present or is not visibly present. Maybe it's physically present, but not visibly present, mm -hmm. but uh, via the image that is, right? And so that's how I honor it. And then the third component of it all ties back to that other stuff about that I mentioned about energy and the porous nature of things. Mm -hmm. So, um, and this goes to the relics question, is that because they have a porous concept of not just humans, the human soul and the human body, but, you know, even the things around us. And they would point to, you know, the John of Damascus points to all, any number of things from like, um, you know, Elijah's bones where, you know, man touches them and he comes back to life, right? Yeah. Uh, to the Ark of the Covenant, right? Um, where, you know, dude touches it and all of a sudden it's like... Too much. It's too much, right? Yeah. Uh, and and you can always, like, I think there's a sort of Western tendency, well, say that wasn't the Ark of the Covenant. That's got to kind of jumping over the Ark of the Covenant, smacking the dude down. The Ark of the Covenant is just a box of gold, right? But that's not how they saw it, right? God, that that object is been touched by God regularly because the glory of God descends. And you see that even in how the um, artifacts are treated 
in the Old Testament. So like you have artisans who are, you know, powered by God to make these artifacts and then they're laid out and then Moses blesses them and the glory of God descends and touches them. And now they're holy and shouldn't, you know, be touched by normal people or interacted with in a normal way. And that's kind of critical to how the Eastern fathers think about this, right? Is that holiness is actually a transference. It's not just like, well, I make this holy by setting it apart and now nobody's supposed to touch it or they're only supposed to interact. So it's like a functional thing. Uh, holiness is actually ontological reality. God transfers mm. his holiness. It takes up residence in it. And that's what made those artifacts holy. God touched them and, you know, they were made holy by communing with him. And so that's also, that same process is still used in the Eastern church, that the priest, a relic isn't a relic just, or like an icon is not an icon just because it's a painting of Jesus. It actually is supposed to be set behind the altar and blessed and goes through a process of being set apart as huh. an icon that is holy. But then with that, there's also a belief that these things that are set apart as holy, they're no longer common, so you don't interact with them as common objects anymore. Right, they too are supposed to be treated with certain level of reverence, just like you wouldn't, you know, hopefully you wouldn't uh, visiting like the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre, like conduct yourself the way you would, you know, at a frat party, right? right? Because this is a holy place. Yes. Like I probably should change my behavior in this context. So with other holy objects, you don't treat them as common objects since they've been set apart as holy and touched hmm. by God and been blessed. But then with that, there's also this uh, recognition that um, God sometimes does extraordinary things via those objects. So you see Aaron's staff buds, right? And that's a miracle. And they actually put it in the Ark of the Covenant, right? Like they set it aside, right? Because there's this is an especially holy yeah. thing. And there are any number of stories throughout church history of icons that God has used in that way right, where this icon becomes an icon that people who have, you know, this sickness tend to venerate and they get well, right? And so they don't suddenly make that an idol, right? But it is to say that this thing has been set apart as holy is now become a vehicle that is especially set apart for this use and conduit of this activity of God. Um, Anyway, on that little side point there, I think all of that is relevant also to the problem of evil that we talked about earlier, because part of what happens, I think, is in the problem of evil, not to like totally diverge, but in the problem of evil, there's a tendency to think about God as an actor on a stage watching, and he should jump in and do this thing. But when you look at the world, begin to look at the world the way the Eastern Fathers look at the world, it's not just that creatures are of metaphysical necessity certain ways, and there's certain things that God you know, can't make a creature this way or that. But it's also what you start to see is that God's normative mode of activity and the way he's designed the world is not for him to bypass creatures, but for him to act in and through creatures. Yeah, through. Hmm. So in that sense, we should not be surprised if sort of we're thinking about God like electricity that runs through wires and all of the wires are rusty and, you know, a hindrance to the flow of electricity that God seems hidden and more absent than he should be because he is. And he is because the conduits are bad conduits right yeah. now. But then at the same time, what we should see is if the Christian religion is true and it's possible for those conduits to be remade, cleaned up and become conduits for God that you begin to find saints, you begin to find relics, you begin to find these things where God is breaking through in an extraordinary way. And that actually is what I believe does happen in people like 
Elder Paisios, right? Modern day saint. Um, I mean, now he's reposed, but uh, you read the stories about him. He's like a prophet of old, you know, the stories about the relics, the stories about icons that are wonder working and so on. Um, I think it's, this is where I would say a big difference here is that I, I think a key apologetic feature of Christianity is not just the question of tying this back to what I said about Jesus, you know, is there good reason to think that Jesus was extraordinary and the son of God and so on? The question is also, did he accomplish what he set out to accomplish? And the real test of that isn't just whether when I die, God lets me into heaven. The real question is whether any of the would-be conduits are starting to be purified and become true conduits for his operative power in the world. So this is my last question, and it's a question I'm asking every single person this year, so 52 times. Um, and, and, I, and again, I plan to, I, well, I don't know if I told you this or not, I plan to talk to people of other faiths as well. So I'm really excited to hear their answers as well. I'm actually really excited to hear their answers. Um, sure. But uh, there's a grand overarching theme. So uh, if, if you had a student come sit down at your class today, and I'm going to phrase your question differently just because of what mm-hmm. you do, and they say, all right, uh, Dr. Jacobs, when mm-hmm. you say God... What exactly mm-hmm. do you mean? When you say the divine, what do you mean? And mm-hmm. so if, if someone came to you and they said that, like, what are you actually intending to say? And I will say yeah. the answers have been all over the place. I've really enjoyed them. Sure. But yeah. 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 So um, uh, again, I mean, not to go super yeah. academic, but I don't know another way to go, man. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> you are. An, you said you're an artist, but you are an academic. Right. <laughs> Why not? Um, again, I'll set it in contrast with the, with, with the West, right? There's a tendency in the West to think of that when you, that you define God, right? And you start to give attributes the way you would define a circle, right? A circle is a two-dimensional geometric shape with mm-hmm. flowing circumference, all points equal distance from common century, whatever, right? Um, and so you do the same thing with God and you say, well, God is, you know, the greatest of all possible beings, greater than which none can be conceived. And as a result, he's omnipotent, right? He can do anything. He's omniscient. He knows everything, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The Eastern way of thinking about it, which is my way of thinking about it now, um, is that there are sort of three layers of ontology to be talked, talked about, Right. Um, and you can find this in Maximus, the confessor. He talks about that there's God super substantially as he is in himself, the divine nature. Then there are things around God or the divine energies or the divine processions. And then there is creatures. And there's an intersection, right? A porous nature between this, this, the second and the third of those, which mm-hmm. we talked about. Yeah. But this is where the second one, I think, is really important to how, how I think about God, drawing from the Eastern Fathers. So it's easy enough to tend to think again, you know, to start to think, well, I guess the divine energies or divine processions or the things around God are things that sort of like start acting like they're just God acting when he makes the world or something like that. And then sort of just link them with the world. But Maximus actually identifies the divine energies or processions or things around God, pseudo-denonius does too, as these acts that precede time. In other words, they're there as activities of God before he ever makes anything. And one of the analogies that I think is really, really helpful here to thinking about this, which goes to your question, is if I were to introduce you Bach and I said, like, 
Bach is this creative, like we've resurrected it. He's here. And I'm like, he's this creative mm-hmm. genius and the wealth of creativity and beauty. And I start to use all these sort of law yeah. terms. And you've never heard of Bach, right? You go, well, that's great. But what does that actually mean? Like, wh- what does any of that actually mean? Mm-hmm. The best way for me to answer that is to actually give Bach like a piano. Say, show him. Just right? play it. Mm-hmm. And he starts like playing a movement, right? And then you're, you go, wow. But then he's like, oh, but that's not everything, right? And he plays a very different movement. And each movement he plays now, you get a deeper sense of like what I meant by that creative depth that's there. And you get a sense of, you know, speed and accuracy. You get a sense of nuance. You get, you know, each movement starts to draw out all these different, you know, dynamics, of that creative genius and you start to see how deep and rich and inexhaustible it is and so on in the same way what god is his face right what god is super substantially is like that where we say well it is beyond right it's beyond you know the forms and it's beyond this and it's beyond that no man can see it and live and but it's also unarticulated just like box creative genius and it's only God's acts that precede time and then in time um, that begin to articulate it. And so the Eastern Fathers actually, this is a huge difference between East and West, that divine attributes do not actually refer to essential properties of the divine nature. They refer to divine activities. So God's goodness is actually an act that precedes time. It's an activity, just like a movement Bach plays. God's justice is an act that precedes time. It's an activity that precedes time and articulates the divine nature. His simplicity, his, you know, his, his love, right? All of these things are things that articulate. Now, that's not to say that what God is, you know, is super substantially, if you're going to use that sort of terminology, uh, has no structure to it, right? That that he could be evil or he could be good, right? Just like with Bach, it's rooted in something that's there, right? Mm-hmm. The creative genius that flows forth articulates something that's real and underneath it and gives structure to it. Yeah. But at the same time, he has free choice in how it's articulated, right? He doesn't have to play this movement. And each time he does, he's in some way manifesting it anew, right? And a new dimension of it. And that's how the Eastern Fathers talk about God's energies or his processions or the things around God or his acts that precede time is that his goodness and his love and his justice and all these things are ultimately free articulations of who and what God is. And they suggest that that's how we get to know who and what God is. Just mm-hmm. like with Bach, that's yeah. how you get to know what I mean by that. Yeah. And ultimately that's what starts to happen when he makes the world. So as you start to see the dynamism of the world and the orderly nature of the world, and the more we learn about it through, you know, physics and whatever else, like that you start to see more of those articulations of what we mean by his, you know, depth of wisdom and understanding and so on and so forth. Um, And then even obviously in the incarnation, right? In his miracles and his works in history, we can see it more and more and more and more. Those are the manifestation articulation of who and what God is. Those are his attributes, right? The free activities that come down to us, that precede time and then come down to us in the making of things. Perfect. 
Perfect. Before uh, you keep going. So, yeah. My, um, so I usually never run out of memory. I only have two and a half minutes left on my memory card. <laughs> so okay. before we run out of time, literally physically time, mm-hmm. I do want to thank you for coming on very much. So my pleasure. Yeah. It's yeah. I, I usually feel relatively smart throughout today. I have not felt that. So, <laughs> um, so okay. no, it's a great problem. Um, okay. and I've written down, I don't know how many other things to research and, and dig back up on more. So, which is what I, I love it. I love it. So great. Thank you so much, Nathan. For My coming pleasure. On. Anytime, anytime. Today's show was produced by the supporters of the show on Patreon. And I hope to count you among them. I am so thankful for every single one of you that find value in the show and express your partnership with the show in that way. Remember to review the show. It really does help other people uh, connect with the show and the algorithms that drive traffic as people search for God or faith or religion or Jesus or church or atheism or whatever they want to search for. It really does drive people to see the show. And so that's a big help. Special thanks again to Salt of the Sound for their music. Can't wait to talk with you all next week. Be blessed, everybody.